Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm at Prairie Merck's Global on the show. No, Jared, back today. Welcome to a Monday, week two of the college football season. We're here, the biggest game of the year, probably maybe in the, in the country, uh, maybe week one, Clemson, Georgia, um, from a, a ranked perspective. This is hands down going to be one of the top five games of the year. We're going to get into that Oregon at Ohio State uh, later on on the show, later on this week on the podcast. Uh, today is Mailbag Monday, so we're going to answer your questions. A lot of it's going to be back on what happened Saturday at Autzen against Fresno State. But real quick, before we dive into the mailbag, Eric, we need to address uh, some news that happened early Sunday morning, and that was another verbal commitment from uh, the Oregon Duck football program, this time coming from four-star defensive lineman Ben Roberts. And I'm just going to say this, when it rains, it pours, apparently, for the Washington Huskies, because they lose to Montana at home, their worst loss in program history. Uh, They scored just seven points against an FCS team. And then the very next morning, one of their, at one time, prize jewel commitments of their 2022 recruiting class uh, officially goes to the Oregon Ducks, something we were expecting. He backed off his UW commitment a couple of weeks ago maybe a month or so ago, Uh, but nonetheless, really good news for Oregon. And at the same time, it's just kind of like another stab at Washington uh, when they're already down. You kind of, yeah, it's kind of like kicking them when they're down a little bit and uh, yeah, really rough 24 hours for Washington. Don't envy that program, but um, I'll be be okay with it. I think I'll move on from it just fine. Um, The Ben Roberts thing, we've kind of known this was probably going to happen since he popped up at Oregon Saturday night live at camp. Um, at the very end of July and he showed up there Matt reported shortly afterwards that this was not just a you know a, a light unofficial visit he wasn't just checking out what the, you know the school looked like he was giving Oregon a look he opens his recruitment up you know decommits from Washington and, and here we are today with a commitment big time you know defensive lineman Oregon needs interior bodies I think I was pretty impressed by the way with how the defense played up front on Saturday but for the most part, you look at Oregon in a recruiting perspective, interior-wise, it's not as many blue chippers you see other positions. Roberts is probably borderline blue chip. Um, our 247 sports rankings have him as a four-star and one of the top players in Salt in the Salt Lake City in the state of Utah. Um, the composite is a little bit less, I guess, um, kind. It's not a, He's not a four-star recruit on that, but still a big-time addition. And again, at a position to meet, Oregon needed to go find some defensive linemen. They went out and added arguably one of the best um, on the West Coast. Big time get. Huge news for the Ducks. Uh, Their recruiting class still sits at seventh in the country. They have 20 verbal commitments. Uh, We'll have more from a recruiting perspective on the podcast maybe later this week. But nonetheless, another verbal commitment for this football program and one in which continues to put themselves as the top program in the conference and yet again looking for another one recruiting class and program history. All right, let's move on to this mailbag. Uh, We've got a lot of questions 
geared towards Fresno State. And I think we were kind of expecting this with how that played out. Yeah, no question about it. First one from at Nash underscore Duckaneer. When was the last time Oregon had a nail biter of a season opener in Otson? And how did the rest of that particular season play out? I've done the research on this, Nash. Thanks for, I think, opening it up to start with some of that. Before you dive into that, let me guess it, because I did not do the research. Yeah, go for it. it yeah, go ahead. So I, I think the, nail, the, the last time a nail biter happened was probably Indiana. You nailed it. And yep. that season didn't end very well. Yep. No, Matt, Matt, Matt right there nails it. Spoils, spoils a little bit of the suspense of me reading through some other ones. But 2004, the last time Oregon had a nail biter in a home opener, um, they lost that game 30 to 24 to Indiana. They ended up going five and six that season. That was at one time up until the uh, 2016 season, like the only time in like over 30 years or something that they hadn't gone to a bowl. Uh, I think it's the only time under Bilotti they didn't go into a bowl. So that was a pretty crappy season. Um, and shoot, like, I mean, I ran through every single home opening game for the Ducks going back to a very, very long time. Um, I should say home opener as, as in terms of very first game being at home. And in a season where they played like LSU somewhere, I, and then the next week a home game, I didn't include that. Three others that were kind of close um, in terms of first games that, that I also ran through. In 16, Against UC Davis, it was an 18-point game against an FCS school in the late third quarter. Um, not a real nail-biter, but pretty close. Oregon goes 4-8 and eight that season. Eastern Washington, the year before that, similar kind of thing. FCS school, 51-35, late third. You might recall that was the game where Vernon Adams was playing his former team and a former teammate cheap-shotted him and kind of ruined Oregon's season prematurely. Remains probably one of the, honestly, kind of, uh, I don't know, like one of the more, I think, infuriating seasons because of that, because I think Oregon could have been really good that season. They go nine and four, even with Adams missing a lot of time. playoff team. They could have been a, yeah, they could have been right in the midst of that possibly. And then in 2007 against Houston, Oregon was up 34, 27 late third quarter. They ended up winning 48, 27. They scored two unanswered touchdowns at the end. That season goes nine and four. So um, the two worst seasons, I will say in of the last gosh, almost 20 years have taken place after a kind of rough first game, Indiana in 04 and UC Davis in 16. I don't think this is as bad as either of those because I think Fresno State is probably better than both those teams. But it's certainly not a great way to start a season, and the track record's not great in terms of that season turning into something really special afterwards. Now, obviously, Oregon's played um, – they played Michigan State. They played Nebraska. They played Tennessee. Um I don't think any of those teams were week one opponents. And yeah. I, I, I have no history. I have no research done on this, but I feel pretty confident that Fresno state might be like the best program Oregon has played in a very long time at home week one. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm not trying to excuse Oregon playing bad, but that, that was a bull team. That that's going to be a team that might win the Mountain West Conference, and they played them Week One, and Fresno State had a game under their belts already. So while I expected a blowout, and I'm disappointed that they didn't get a blowout victory, at the same time they played a pretty darn good football team. And the Mountain West went two and two yesterday against the Pac-12, or I guess this week because there was a game played earlier. But USC was able to beat San Jose State, Oregon beats Fresno State, but both Nevada. 
um, and Utah State pull upsets over Pac-12 schools. I don't know if Nevada beating Utah or sorry beating Cal was a huge upset, but it was a game that was I think favored because of Cal playing at home. Um, and then Utah State snuck by Washington State. That is a really late night game. That I don't even think I saw the end of. Um, I saw, saw you guys having some messages at like after midnight about what was going on in that one, and I was like, I didn't. I, I fell asleep watching the replay of Oregon's game last night. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, yeah, the, the, the Pac-12 didn't perform great. The Mountain West showed that they can be competitive. And I think most people think Fresno State's better than Utah State and probably pretty comp comparable to Nevada. So um, I think a quality opponent, I agree. Next one from at QuackAttack74. Was there any specific reason we didn't get to see some of the freshmen on offense? Examples, Troy Franklin, Seven McGee. Do you think we will see them or other young players this week at Ohio State? Hashtag Otsnodables. Um, both Franklin and McGee did play in the game, by the way. Um, McGee didn't play any offense. I believe it was all special teams. Franklin played quite a bit, actually. Um, not a full game. I will note that we, we'd heard, and I think Mario even acknowledged it, that there was an injury suffered by Franklin in the days leading up to the game. Not a serious injury at all because he was able to play a little bit. Like, again, you watch the game, and he, he was out there at least for 20, 30 plays, I would think. Yeah, he played. He didn't, wasn't targeted at all. Um, I think we're going to see more and more Franklin as the season goes on. I, I actually, I was a little surprised by this as well. I predicted he would um, lead the team in receiving yards. That didn't take place. He'd have his first touchdown. That didn't take place. Um, again, part of that injury related. I think part of the receiver stuff, like why didn't you recognize a receiver having a big game? It's just like simply none of them had big games. Um, so there's that part of it. And then with, with McGee, I, I don't know, Matt, like what'd you think about the running back rotation? They only played two. Were you surprised by that? Did you want to see somebody else? You know, if they were going to give Cyrus a couple carries per game, um, I figured they were going to give a third guy some carries. Um, I'm not surprised at all about Troy Franklin uh, having a limited impact in this game because of that potential injury that he had. Sorry, there's a dog barking in my back part of my house. What are you going to do? Uh, and then – but Die and Franklin or Die and, and, and Verdell getting a bulk of the carries. Verdell not starting this football game. I kind of wonder if they were taking it easy with Verdell and then they ended up having to use him a little bit more than they wanted. And I think the fact that we didn't see some of these younger guys play is probably in most part impact because the game didn't get out of hand. The game, Oregon had to come back in the fourth quarter to win. And yeah. you're going to rely on your best players, not your freshmen. Totally. I'm with agreement there, Matt, that I don't know if the game script really called for a lot of playing seven McGee, Troy Benson or Byron Cardwell. Uh, Cardwell and McGee both were on the participation chart, I think totally as special teams players. I didn't see Benson. Benson was not on it, so he didn't play um, for whatever reason. But I, I also think like if you go into the game thinking, OK, we're going to kind of slow play Verdell. We don't want to play him a ton and you end up having to use him late. Well, wouldn't you like the part of the game where you're not using him a lot to kind of maybe sprinkle in a little bit of Byron Cardwell or Seven McGee or Trey Benson or whoever's available just to kind of see what you have a little bit with those guys? I don't know. I was I was actually a little surprised. I'm with you, Matt. I thought because of Cyrus and his role where he got, you know, two to six carries per game, sometimes more based upon how he played. We'd see something similar from one of the other backs and we didn't see them. Going forward against Ohio State, I don't know why we would see one of the freshman running backs play in that game if we didn't see them against Fresno State. That, the way that game is going to – I mean, unless it's just such a blowout Ohio State's way. I know that's being being negative that we that Oregon opens up at second-team offense at some point. But, like, when the starters are in, why would you see those guys play in that – you know, against Ohio State, a more competitive team than against Fresno State? 
Um, I don't see that happening. I think Franklin, assuming he's fully healthy or gets closer to that, um, I think we'll see more of him going out, you know, throughout the rest of the season for sure. Third one from at J Remy two, <laughs> for the most part, a lot of fans need to chill out. All right. I, I kind of agree with some of that. I expected a little sloppy and vanilla play. Only thing I didn't like was how far off the line, the boundary corners are playing free eight to 12 yard completion. Anytime they wanted it. Um, that's a thought that I just kind of wanted to build off of Matt. We don't have yeah. to spend too much time here, but we talked about this a little bit and then having gone back and rewatched a little bit of it. Yeah. Like people can be critical of the stat line Jake Hayner put up, but I don't think we should be overly concerned with the personnel and how it played. I actually thought the corners played pretty darn good. Um, Triquas had some really nice moments in coverage, but the issue was that they were playing very, very soft and big, big cushions. Like Remy said, soft zones, oftentimes, um, and just a lot of space for Hayner to basically take two steps, to, you know, take a two, two, three step drop and find a guy. And he was very, very accurate in that. And that's why the game shifted was there was a stretch early where he had no time. He was getting, you know, he was running for his life, getting sacked, getting clobbered by Kayvon Thibodeau. And when Thibodeau left the game, the pass rush kind of went away. And suddenly these kind of soft cushions are, are problematic. And that's what happened in this game. I think it shifted in the second half uh, when a little bit more, or a little bit more man coverage played. So I'm in, I'm in agreement there that that I think the the some of the just way they defended on the perimeter was concerning, and you now go against Ohio State, Matt, and you better find a way to be a little more effective in defense defending on the outside because Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are the two best receivers in the country. You look at like NFL mock drafts; they could both be top ten, top fifteen NFL draft picks. That's the kind of guys Oregon's facing in Columbus on Saturday. Um, they need to get that short out. And again, I was a little disappointed that we just didn't see those guys play lockdown man-on-man coverage all game. I know schematically Oregon does play a lot of zone. Um, I would think against Ohio State we'll see a lot more man. Or, or, or maybe they don't feel confident in their ability to defend and that we'll play even more zone. But I think that would be a mistake. I think Oregon's defense in terms of the, the soft coverage was by design. Like, I, I think Oregon came out and said – Okay, if if you're gonna score on us, it's an approach that you take with a, a team that in, has inferior talent. Mm-hmm. If, if you're going to score on us, you are going to have to go the length of the football field, because we believe that if you have to go the length of the football field, ultimately you are going to end up making a mistake, because you're going to have a whole bunch of opportunities to make one, and the law of averages is on our side. And you will make a mistake and you either settle for a field goal, a missed field goal, or you punt or you turn the ball over. And so if you look at or if you look at Fresno State's receiving core, their long of a pass was 39 yards and it wasn't for a touchdown. They had a 21 yard pass, which did not go for a touchdown. They had uh, a long of 17 Jalen Cropper uh, for a touchdown. But that was your big play you know, 18 yards, didn't go for a touchdown. So I I think part of the cornerback issues that fans have was by design and it worked. I mean, how many times did Fresno State have a drive that was going and all of a sudden they make a mistake and and Oregon made a pay by getting a turnover? Um, I I think it was 100% by design. They are going to make you – dink and dunk all the way down the field to score a touchdown because they believe ultimately you'll make a mistake. Now, can you do that against Ohio state? To a degree, but you're not going to be able to do that the entire time because you're right. Their receivers are the best in the country. This will be the toughest task Oregon has faced all year, but 
We should also note, this is just me speculating here, wouldn't be surprised if we get Jamal Hill and DJ James back for this football game, which will help even more for Oregon. Yeah, no question. No question. I would just – my, my point was basically I would say, like, from – I think a lot of people were critical of the personnel. I think that part isn't super accurate, um, you know, in terms of, like, I didn't think Tricrest Bridges and Dante Manning just got burnt all day. I thought those guys played pretty well. And I didn't think Bennett Williams was terrible either, you know, and those are the guys replacing Hill and James. Now, I think Hill and James have a real shot of coming in and contributing quite a bit right away. We'll see what that looks like in practice. I'm actually curious to hear what Mario has to say on Monday kind of about – managing that because it is sort of an interesting scenario where you do have these guys who've been battling off follow camp for playing time and they win their jobs or are positioned to win their jobs. And then these guys come back who weren't playing at all in fall who were suspended for it because of something that was pretty silly. Do you just hand them their jobs back? What's kind of that push and pull of, of kind of negotiating that. All right. Last one specifically towards the Fresno state game before we move ahead to some questions um, that, that I think are a little bit, you know, towards Ohio state and, and onwards throughout the season. From at Latrell John, very simple. Why run it up the middle 30 times? Um, I don't have an exact count, John. I think you're pretty darn close with 30, though. Um, Oregon's running backs had 31 carries. I know uh, a couple of those were on option pitches to Travis Dye. Off the, those are off tackles, obviously. But there were a lot of interior run plays. Now, why run it up the middle? You can argue that it worked at times. I mean, Oregon scored its first two touchdowns playing that way. I went back and watched those plays. Again, I fell asleep a little bit in <laughs> rewatching the game, so I didn't see every play again, and I'll catch up on some of that later. But, like, I thought they had some success running up the middle. I also thought that there was a lot of times where uh, you'd probably like to see them do something different. You'd probably like to see them – honestly, I'd like to see more runs off tackle with these guys, especially Travis Dye. I mean, he's so explosive and dynamic, and even C.J., um, that, you know, get those guys out in space a little bit more. Why run them into crowded places where they can get hit pretty good? And I know they didn't, neither of them fumbled it, but both have a history of, of coughing the ball up. So, I mean, I'd like to get those guys out in space some more. Um, and, and really, you know, they, they ran 47 times and they passed 25 times, you know, that speaks to. And so why do they do that? I think Matt has a point here of Oregon felt they had the superior talent. And they felt by running the ball a bunch, kind of similar to what he's talking about in terms of the zone coverage of if you run the ball a bunch and you just have some success moving the ball on the ground, you kill clock and you kind of take away the opportunities for the inferior talented team to, to maybe jump out and, and, and surprise you. At the same time, I would just have liked to see them open the playbook up more, or at least be more aggressive throwing the ball. I, I went again, what, the part I watched, I, I rewatched it and actually thought Brown was fine in the first quarter. I didn't think he played poorly. There just wasn't a lot of opportunity for him to do much. Um, so I, I'd like to see that open up a little bit more. And if I think we'll be probably very disappointed if we're having a similar conversation about 30 interior run plays after Ohio state, I can't see Oregon winning a game where they just pound, 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 unless this offensive line takes a huge step, which uh, frankly, they weren't, the, they were, I had them ranked as the worst group on the team on Saturday. I graded them a C grade. You can go check out all my grades on duckterritor.com, but I wasn't super, super impressed with that group and they're going to have to go out and prove something or else running the ball 30 minutes or 30 times up the middle. is just not going to work against Ohio state at all. Yeah. You need, you need a effective, efficient and highly productive um, passing attack by Oregon. If you're going to beat Ohio state, you need Anthony Brown to, you know, he needs to be throwing for close to 300 yards or if he's not running for th- if he's not passing for 300 yards, it's because your defense is giving you short yardage, and 
You don't have to go the length of the football field and you're getting touchdowns in a very short order. Um, this is a game Oregon's going to have to score probably in the high thirties, low forties to, to win. I agree. I, I don't feel confident at all. If Oregon scores 21 points or 25 points or 30 points and they're winning that game. I don't feel confident. Yeah. As much as I thought the defense played great, I just think it's really hard to expect. Ohio State's just going to score points, not based upon being not, not on bad defense by Oregon, but just by awesome offense. You know, I mean, those receivers are something else. And and frankly, the running backs are good too. And CJ Stroud, I think will take a step. I wasn't like super, super impressed by him um, in the opener, but that's his first start ever. So like, there's going to be some growth there. Um, tough matchup, very tough matchup week two. One that's going to take a lot of things breaking right for Oregon to win. All right, next one from at C-Train89. Sloppy game today, but we pulled it out. What adjustments do we need to make to challenge Ohio State? And is there any chance KT will be on the field next week? Let's answer the second part first, Matt. Um, Mario Cristobal did give a updated injury report with Kayvon Thibodeau. What do we know? Yeah, sprained ankle, x-rays came back negative was in a walking boot. Um, I've already had someone that I know message me that they saw Kayvon Thibodeau out and about town Saturday evening. Um, looked fine. Granted, he was in a walking boot. He's going to play. It'd be a shock to me if he doesn't play against Ohio State. Um, that being said, you're not going to have 100% KT probably, which is unfortunate. But I think even a, a, a ginger – Walking gingerly, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau is a lot better than what a lot of people are going to throw out at Ohio State. So he will still be the best player on the football field. I expect him to play against Ohio State. Um, as for what kind of adjustments need to happen, uh, first and foremost, I, I think the play, you know, the play call creativity on offense um, needs to improve. I think they need to do a better job of pass protecting. Like I have more adjustments on the offensive side of the football than I do defensively. Yeah. Um, I, I think some of that pass coverage stuff, the, the concerns there doesn't go, it doesn't happen if KT was playing in that game against Fresno state. And he's, he should be playing this game against Ohio state. Um, so offensively, I, I'd like to see a, a cleaner pocket for Anthony Brown. I'd like to see Anthony Brown not be gun shy and pull the trigger. Felt like a couple of times, uh, in that football game, he felt like maybe I should throw this ball. I probably should throw this ball. Okay, now it's too late. I can't throw it. Um, and I, I'd like to see them take some shots downfield. I think they only took two shots all game. Now, they probably called some plays that should have been downfield throws that just didn't materialize. But they actually were only able to pull off, in my mind, two plays downfield passing the football. That needs to go way up. Yeah, good point on the decisiveness factor for Anthony. I think one of the things I remember Mario saying after the first scrimmage, which is the one Ty Thompson excelled in, his compliment was like Ty was really decisive and got the ball out quick and knew where he was going with it. I didn't feel like that was the case for Anthony right. all the time yesterday. There were certain – I'm not going to say there weren't times and he completed 15 passes. A lot of those were cases where he knew where to go with it and got it out. Um, and, and, again, on the rewatch, like – even some of the underneath stuff, pretty impressive arm talent. I thought he had some nice, a little bit of zip on those balls. Um, there were also some times where he was just off too. So, I mean, execution needs to improve overall with the offense. I totally agree on the offensive line and pass protection. They were better, I think, on run plays, but still not fantastic. I mean, Oregon was in a lot of third down situations in part because 
they just didn't win first down or second down the way they needed to, to set up good third down situations. So there's, I think three of seven third down conversions or opportunities were, um, were third and long. So about half of them were those and they didn't get any of them. I don't think so. Um, there's, there's a lot of things offensively to improve on. I think defensively, I, I, I point to the secondary probably. And, and I would also like, no, I, I, you know, I don't want to be critical of Oregon's linebackers that much because I think they're amazing and I gave them an A grade. There were times in coverage in particular where I thought both Sewell and Flo were a little lost, kind of in the middle of the field. A few times where Hayner was able to find – I mean, a lot of what Hayner did was kind of to the perimeter on the outside near the sidelines. Um, a, lot of cross, a lot of crossing routes that he was able to find through the middle of the zones that, you know, kind of materialize by the sideline. But there was some success in the middle of the field, and a lot of that was because it was just some weird – not weird, but just some, I think – assignment errors by Oregon's linebackers. So want to see that cleaned up too. Overall, Oregon's linebackers were awesome. I thought they yeah. were fantastic. All right. Last one for from at Tim Reeves 44. Biggest question I have is where is the passing game? And I thought we should finish here. All camp we heard about this intense quarterback competition and how great and deep the quarterback or sorry the wide receiver core was didn't translate into any production. Hashtag odds notables. I, we've talked a lot about Anthony Brown, so I don't want to like really stay here that long. But Matt, were you surprised? Like, I, I know I was. It didn't seem like the receivers did him too many favors. Like, obviously, Johnny Johnson got open to catch that long touchdown. Um, but Johnson also mishandled the pass that was thrown his way on a long pass. You mentioned a couple of shots being taken. I think the other one was a, was a third down play to Johnson where pretty, you know, a lot of hand fighting, pretty aggressive play by the corner, but Johnson couldn't come down with it. Pittman dropped a few that were up to touchdown pass. Up to touchdown for sure. That were definitely catchable. Um, it wasn't the best throw, but it, no. it could have been caught. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't. It was a little low. It was that was not perfect placement, but you know, I remember as my like fifth grade peewee football coach would say, if it hits your hands, you should catch it. And it hit his hands and he probably could have caught it. So there's that. And then I thought from like a just creating separation and getting open perspective, I was a little disappointed. I mean, Fresno State secondary has some good players, you know, a couple guys that were playing at Pac-12 schools previously, but it's not like this is a bunch of, this isn't the strength of their defense or their team. And I was a little surprised with just like, there weren't any huge, that many huge plays. And I, I thought there would be an opportunity for more of that. Granted, there were some bad throws some poor decisions, but I, I thought the receiving core was actually a little bit surprising. I, I thought that they were, I mean, I've been saying all camp, I think they're the most talented in school history. They didn't point, look like it. Yeah, point blank. They, they just didn't look like that. Like, it would be hard to – if you came away, you know, if I told you going into the game that was the case, I think most people would come back and go, like, really? Because it didn't seem that way. They didn't really make enough plays for, you know, for that sort of a statement to stand and hold much water. I don't think – I am extremely high on the talent at receiver. I don't think they used the talent to its best possible outcome. Yeah. Like I watched Fresno State and their offense and it it felt like they were playing to their strengths. They were getting guys in, in open spaces or one-on-one situations and there you go. Um I watched other games across college football and their offenses were playing to their strengths. They were getting guys open in one-on-one spaces. And then you watch Oregon, and I didn't feel like that. Like, it didn't feel like they were – and this – there's two things here. 
they were either super vanilla and trying to keep things super hidden from Ohio State, and we're going to see a whole bunch of, of rollouts. We're going to see a whole bunch of, of guys in, you know, crossing patterns and one-on-one situations, guys in space making plays, or simply they don't have the player personnel to run the type of offense that they're trying to run or the talent isn't good enough to run the, you know, the scheme that they're wanting to run. And therefore it's not being run effectively and efficiently. It's one of the two in, in my eyes, because it's kind of, I mean, this team looks the same as it did last year and it's, you know, year it's games, what eight now with Joe Moorhead as the offensive coordinator. And yet the offense feels very similar to, what it was in 2019 under Marcus Arroyo. And, you know, this doesn't look like the full extent of an offense that we saw at Mississippi State with under Joe Moorhead as head coach or that we saw at Penn State when Joe Moorhead was the offensive coordinator or at any of his other previous stops as offensive coordinator. So they're either being super vanilla uh, or they're just not properly running what is effective for the player personnel that they have. And I don't want to say that because it's one game and it's week one. And so I'm, I'm hoping it's more of the fact that they're just being vanilla right now. And we're going to see a lot more and a more creative offense and uh, getting guys to their strengths and playing guys in one-on-one space situations moving forward. Just a closing thought on this is I can't think of a single screen pass run all game. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I don't think there was one. I mean, they might have thrown it to a receiver who was, you know, in the flat somewhere, but I don't think there – and that doesn't have to be a huge part of an offense. But with Oregon, we think having such an advantage in space and having guys like Jalen Red and Chris Hudson and Troy Franklin and, and others that – and Micah Pittman, who we think are really good at beating, you know, winning one-on-one battles and getting up the field, I was just a little surprised that wasn't a big part of it. And it seemed like I – mean, I remember, I, I, you know – I think John Johnson made this point. I asked kind of what adjustments need to be make it, made to receiver here. Um, and one of the things he said was running the right distance on the routes. And that seems like a small thing, but there was a third down play where Anthony Brown ended up scrambling. It was like a third and seven. And you go watch it. Three of his four receivers were short of the sticks and defended by somebody. And it's like, even if he throws the ball there, they're not giving him an opportunity to really pick up a first down. So I'm sure Anthony's going like, I can throw it there. There's no shirt guarantee they're going to catch it and gain a first down because they're already behind the sticks and they have to make a guy miss, or I can try to make it on my own. And um, I just think that overall, we, the, we the, Anthony Brown was not fantastic, but there were other players that played a role in why the passing offense wasn't sure. fantastic. It wasn't all on his shoulders. And exactly, and I'm not, and that's where I was saying, like I don't think yeah, I Anthony Brown played a D minus game of football, and I don't think he was the worst guy on the field either. He wasn't the best. You know, and it's it's obvious watching him that he is a better runner that Oregon has had the last couple of seasons at the quarterback position. And he's probably not the most accurate quarterback, you know, when you compare him to Justin Herbert or when you compare him to Vernon Adams and certainly Marcus Mariota. Okay. But he is certainly a guy that can connect on the ball. He can throw good passes. He's going to be good enough to win you every game on the schedule if you play to his strengths and we didn't see anything where it was like, Hey, let's roll him out and give him the benefit of the doubt where it's like, Hey, you've got three options. If none of those three options are open, run the football because you're clearly good enough to run. They were running him quite a bit. And that's where I think fans get frustrated is 
hey, you're, he, it looked like he was trying to be a pocket passer, and that does not feel like what makes him so good is he's good enough to be a, a guy that's going to be on the move, find the open guy, hit him in stride, throw the football, and if nothing is open, take the six or seven yards upfield, get down, run the play again. No, no, I think that's exactly right. And that's where I try to have some optimism that we're going to see something a little different here because it just feels like either the t- either the, the offense is not built around the right personnel or they're holding a little of this back. And I just want to try to stay optimistic that it's the latter. Um, I don't know it's the latter. We'll see. I, you know, I mean, and frankly, like, we're going to really learn a lot on Saturday. I yeah. mean, a lot, a lot, I think. I mean, I think we come away from the Fresno State game having a lot of reason for concern. Everything will be forgiven if they go out and compete with Ohio State. And if they beat Ohio State, no one's going to really care much about this Fresno State game at all. It, but They could lose to Ohio State. Yeah. And in and, and six weeks, what they do to Fresno State didn't matter. Sure. One bit. Because they, they could go and they could run off four more victories and they're five and one in the middle of October and Ohio and they, maybe they lose to Ohio state by 13 points and the Buckeyes are the number two team in the country and Oregon has, you know, done their job and they blew out Stony Brook. They blow out Arizona. Uh, they blow out Stanford. I think they play Colorado or you see, you know, one of those teams after that. And, you know, they're, they're sitting there five and one and they're back inside the top 10 no one's going to care that Oregon beat Fresno State by one by one touchdown. And just last thought before we, we wrap this one up, I, I do think this win over Fresno State down the line could look really good. Yeah. Like we talked about it. Fresno State. What if Fresno State goes out and wins the Mountain West? And let's say they only lose two more games all season and they win a bowl game. That's a win over a 10-win team from a conference and a conference champion. I'm not, I'm not going to be stunned if that happens. I think the Mountain West is actually really competitive and there were some impressive performances on Saturday from a lot of them. But like, I'm not going to be stunned at all if Fresno State has a fantastic season. And this game is looked back on, you know, later in the season. That's like, yeah, that's a pretty darn good win right there. I know it felt ugly in the moment, but hey, that was pretty impressive to, you know, to pull out that victory because this Bulldog team's pretty good. All right, it's going to do it for us here on the Oxen Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for submitting your questions. Stay tuned throughout the entire week as we have more coming recapping Oregon versus Fresno State, as well as looking ahead to this weekend's massive road game at Ohio State, two top 10 teams battling it out on Saturday from Columbus. For Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Prem. Thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.